DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, troubled passage. Could Azerbaijan's Zangazor Corridor be Europe's next conflict flashpoint? It would effectively mean the West being kicked out of the Caucasus. The idea would be Turkey, uh, Azerbaijan and Russia eventually push out uh, Western actors and leverage and also possibly lead to a situation which might risk the overthrow of the government in Armenia. Then Macron in the Middle East, but problems loom closer to home, and Orban loses an ally, how the Polish election results are changing things for Hungary. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. As the leaders of the EU's 27 nations gathered in Brussels for their traditional autumn summit this Thursday, there was all but universal agreement that the world was in a perilous state. In addition to the deadly conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine, tensions in the Caucasus region were on the agenda. Last month, Azerbaijani forces recaptured the ethnic Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, creating tens of thousands of refugees. Now, there are concerns that more conflict may be looming, this time focused around the Nakhchivan Autonomous Republic, an Azerbaijani exclave populated by Azeris, a Turkic ethnic minority group widespread in the region. As Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul, any new conflict could have far-reaching consequences for both the region and beyond. An Azerbaijani military video of joint military drills with Turkish forces across Azerbaijan and Nakhchivan, an Azeri enclave that borders Turkey. The three-day powerful show of force follows last month's joint call by the Turkish and Azerbaijani leadership for a 40-kilometre corridor through Armenian territory to connect Azerbaijan up with its Azeri enclave. The Zanguzur Corridor, as it's dubbed, is of critical importance to the close allies. But Armenia strongly opposes the passage. Asla Aydentashbash of the Washington Brookings Institution says a conflict could be looming. Turkey does not necessarily want a militarized solution. The nature of the relationship with Azerbaijan and Turkey and between President Aliyev and President Erdogan is more or less a blind check. And the Turkish position is they would like a trade route into Nakhchivan and Central Asia if that is if it's possible to do it through peaceful means. I think they prefer that, but if Azerbaijan chooses to do it through military means, it does seem like it can count on Turkish support. For Turkey, the corridor is also strategically important, explains Hussein Baja, head of the Foreign Policy Institute, a research organisation in Ankara. He warns that Armenia is now faced with a stark choice. Armenia has to make a decision, peace for land or land for peace. For Turkey, very important. To have this uh, Senzegur corridor open, not only to connect with Azerbaijan, with Azerbaijan, but also with all the Central Asian uh, countries, Caspian Sea, and uh, also through the main roads that the goods of Turkey will be transported to Central Asia. The simmering tensions come after last month's capture by Turkish-backed Azerbaijani forces of Nagorno-Karabakh, an ethnic Armenian enclave 
resulting in over 100,000 refugees fleeing to neighboring Armenia. Eric Hachopian, a political consultant in Armenia, warns the Yerevan government is in no position to give up Armenian territory. This is the red line of red lines. It will never be accepted. What they say is that let's open up all roads. It's our sovereign territory. You drive through our sovereign territory. We drive through your sovereign territory. But the roads will be controlled by us. There's not going to be a corridor. Road opening, yes. Corridor, a legal corridor controlled by another country, absolutely not. But Moscow backs the idea of a land corridor, proposing Russian soldiers administer it. Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashian is seeking to break away from Russia's sphere of influence and align with the European Union. Moscow sees a corridor outside of Yerevan's control as part of a broader strategy of circumventing international sanctions by new trade routes through friendly countries, explains Russian expert Tatiana Mutrova, a visiting professor at the Paris School of International Affairs. Russia is basically rebuilding its whole logistical network. And this corridor is potentially an important part of this new network from north to south. Moscow's influence in the Caucasus has been on the rise since political infighting resulted in the European Union's failure to broker a peace deal between Azerbaijan and Armenia at the EU summit in Spain earlier this month. Soliozel is a teacher of international relations at Istanbul's Kardahast University. Azeris said that Turkey ought to be in the talks. The Germans and the French said Turkey cannot be in the talks. And you really wonder which world they're living in. I would have expected that the Europeans, particularly the French, would work with Turkey and get, Azerbaijan, get Armenia out of the um, orbit of Russia. Following the failed EU peace effort, Russian President Vladimir Putin was quick to court his Azeri counterpart, Ilham Aliyev. And Azerbaijan's stance against Armenia has hardened even further. Analyst Aydin Tashbash warns if a new conflict erupts in the Caucasus, the long-term consequences will be significant for all players. It would effectively mean the West being kicked out of the Caucasus. The idea would be Turkey, uh, Azerbaijan and Russia eventually push out uh, Western actors and leverage and also possibly lead to a situation which might risk the overthrow of the government in Armenia. The ousting of a pro-Western Armenian government would undoubtedly be welcomed by Putin as he seeks to maintain his grip on the region and circumvent international sanctions. If the EU wants to prevent that scenario, then it's going to have to up its diplomatic game, and fast. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. And to follow all the latest diplomatic developments in Brussels, you can follow the DW Europe handles or download DW's breaking news app. The French president was in the Middle East this week, promoting the idea of the creation of an international coalition to fight the armed Palestinian group Hamas. Emmanuel Macron met with both Israel's president, Benjamin Netanyahu, and his Palestinian counterpart, Mahmoud Abbas, as well as with the leaders of Egypt and Jordan. 
To talk about this latest French intervention on the world stage, as well as problems closer to home, I spoke to the French-Algerian journalist Nabila Ramdani, author of the book Fixing France, How to Repair a Broken Republic, which came out earlier this month. What, I asked her, was her response to Macron's visit. As far as Emmanuel Macron's trip to the Middle East is concerned, I'm afraid he uttered his typically ambiguous uh, statements on a massively serious uh, issue. He effectively suggested that France should join the coalition to fight terror groups in the region, but he could be suggesting anything uh, from the West actively joining in uh, the Hamas-Israel war with a full-scale invasion to limited intervention in the style of the disastrous uh, Libyan bombing campaign, or he might just be talking about an international diplomatic coalition. Uh, Who knows? Macron was hugging both the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Palestinian uh, President uh, Abbas on the same day, and he was adapting his discourse depending on what each of them wanted to hear. And we all saw how Macron was clumsy in his efforts to prevent the Russians invading Ukraine in 2022. Uh, His trips to Moscow to meet Putin were an abject failure, and he's no better qualified to stop the carnage in in the Middle East. It has to be noted that he didn't call for a ceasefire, for example, but instead he reverted to the usual uh, Western position of supplying huge amounts of mainly American weapons to maintain a a near-permanent war. It has to be said, though, that his decision to visit not only Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, but also Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority, was a significant departure from, for example, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who only visited Israel and uh, made it very clear that he saw Germany's place as being alongside Israel. Yes, but it's, uh, it, it was also a departure in the tradition of French diplomacy, for example. Um, not calling for a ceasefire uh, was uh, loudly criticised in France from all corners. Uh, instead, Emmanuel Macron promised to increase uh, humanitarian aid, uh, but that means that uh, uh, people can be bombed and, and die with uh, some food in their belly, but uh, it doesn't mean that they will stop uh, being killed. And that's a a very stark departure from the tradition of French diplomacy, from the late Jacques Chirac to Dominique de Villepin, who uh, famously opposed the uh, war uh, in Iraq, for example. Uh, So that raised, um, um, you know, sharp criticism in France. Yes, indeed. And uh, that call for a ceasefire is very, very loud in France. Last Sunday, uh, thousands gathered in central Paris for the first police sanctioned. That's something I'm hoping you'll comment on. The first police sanctioned pro-Palestinian demonstration since the current military offensive began. Could we perhaps zoom back into the domestic now, Nabila Ramdani? Um, Can you tell me a bit about how the situation in the Middle East is impacting what was already a very fraught domestic political situation in France. To be perfectly honest, I don't think there's a huge amount of change. Uh, France has pretty much been on non-stop terrorist alert since the terrible attacks of 2015, uh, meaning you see uh, troops on the streets, there's heightened security measures everywhere. Uh, But of course, the terrible events in Israeli border towns and the uh, subsequent carnage in Gaza 
have had repercussions across the world and France is no different. And these are very dangerous days. Uh, France is always uh, polarized over Israel-Palestine because in very simple terms, there are masses of supporters of, pal of the Palestinian cause in France. And there are indeed lots of people who very much support uh, Israel. But demonstrations in favor of Palestine were banned for a long time. The cynical argument was that Palestine supporters are, are too unruly and too prompt to create disorder. Now, such a view is quite absurd when you consider how every single major protest in France invariably ends up in, in rioting, uh, whether it involves the, um, the Gilets jaunes, the, the Yellow Vests movement, or the huge numbers of people from every generation who opposed President Emmanuel Macron's pension reforms uh, earlier this year. Uh, France is, of course, uh, nothing uh, but a protest nation. It's uh, the land of liberty, equality and fraternity, which was built on this end. Now, this puts us very squarely in the territory of your new book out this month. It's called Fixing France, How to Repair a Broken Republic. Is France really a broken republic, Nabila? And if so, in what ways is it broken? And indeed, who broke it? Well, I think uh, the perception is that France is a rather quaint and antiquated country where you can go and escape uh, reality. And the, the purpose of my book is to cut through the myths and describe a country where there is mass dissent, including in the countryside, and where political institutions aren't really fit for purpose. And perhaps the major fault line I describe is the absurd amount of power that is invested in one president and the very real danger that this one president might soon be a full-blown extremist committed to full-blown state racism, uh, to put it bluntly. Right. So that's the danger of the presidential office being um, inhabited by uh, Marine Le Pen. This issue, this structural issue that's really at the heart of the book and at the heart of the problems that you identify is very much linked to France's colonial past and to its relationship with Algeria, Algeria being the country that uh, your parents are originally from. Perhaps you could explain to me how it is that the Fifth Republic and the concentration of power in this figure of the president that's at the heart of it, how that relates to France's colonial past. My book examines the intricate link between the foundation of the Fifth Republic and the constitution of the Fifth Republic and the Algerian War of Independence. Uh, the Fifth Republic was founded uh, during a period of utter turmoil and the chaos was mainly caused by the Algerian War of Independence. Uh, there were very fierce uh, nationalists who wanted to hang on to France's most valued colony, uh, which was in fact uh, considered as part of the French territory per se. Uh, meanwhile, plenty of others wanted to let it go. And this was a time, of course, when the world was waking up to the principle of, of self-determination. Um, and Charles de Gaulle, uh, who was the great war hero, was brought out of the political wilderness to effectively impose military values on the chaos and he and his supporters argued that the strong man leader was required and that the increasingly weak parliament in Paris should not be an encumbrance to this. And that's why ever since then, far too much power has been centralized in the head of state. A new constitution was written 
and it effectively created the notion of a quasi-monarchical French president who is supported by a massively powerful security state and who can govern by decree. So that's why I argue in my book that at the very least, uh, reforming the presidential system should remove the mechanism by which a highly determined individual can effectively take control of the whole system. Nabila Ramdani is author of the book Fixing France, How to Repair a Broken Republic, which is out with Hearst Publishers in the UK and Hachette in the US. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. There have been some major shifts in the balance of power since EU leaders last met. Populist politician Robert Fico is now in power in Slovakia, whilst in Poland the right-wing Law and Justice Party has lost their majority, with the former leader of the European Council, Donald Tusk, now seeking to form a governing coalition. This latest development comes as a bitter blow to Hungarian President Viktor Orban, who fears losing a crucial political ally in his battle with the European Union over the rule of law. To discuss this new political reality in Central and Eastern Europe, I spoke earlier to our Budapest correspondent, Stefan Boss, who began by explaining why the Polish connection has been so crucial to Orban's illiberal democracy model within Europe. When Viktor Orban came to power, he found a partner in Poland's conservative nationalist Law and Justice Party, and it took over Orban's playbook of limiting press freedom and other rights that were taken for granted since the democratic changes. Uh, However, uh, the two countries played still a significant role in Central Europe as part of the Visegrad group, which besides Hungary and Poland also contains the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And, of course, they could help each other in the fight against the EU, which has now frozen nearly 130 billion euros for both nations over their perceived lack of democratic credentials and concerns about the rule of law and massive corruption. So, you know, he really had a partner there. But, of course, with the opposition most likely now becoming uh, the new government of Poland, that will all change. Well, indeed, Stefan, maybe you could tell me a bit more about how the inability of Poland's Law and Justice Party to form a government is going to impact both nations. Well, I, you know, you can already see it now because the uh, opposition leader and uh, most likely soon to be Prime Minister Donald Tusk was already meeting the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to try to unlock over 100 billion euros of frozen funds for Poland uh, that have been blocked because of these rule of law concerns. And uh, Hungary's prime minister now still struggles to receive nearly 30 billion euros in different funding to help Hungary's struggling economy. He also may not have an ally soon in his tough anti-migration stance. Just uh, around the elections in Poland, Orban still recalled that uh, both countries opposed the European Union's statement about migration and changing the bloc's rules for handling irregular arrivals, including the 
fair distribution of refugees among member states. This is what he said about that. There is no agreement on immigration because previously we decided that migration will be uh, regulated on a unilaterally agreement basis, which was changed last meeting. Poland and Hungary was not satisfied with the proposal, but they pushed through the proposal. So after this, there is no any chance to have any kind of compromise and agreement on uh, migration. However, without Poland's law and justice in power, pressure will, uh, I think, mount on Hungary to change its political tune on migration and the rule of law, including, of course, uh, tackling the massive corruption here. Right. Okay. So uh, bad news for Orban. um, But uh, how does the opposition view the outcome of the elections in a nation which has long been considered one of Hungary's closest regional allies? Well, they are, of course, much more enthusiastic, especially uh, the leftist uh, opposition here. Uh, They hope uh, that without Poland, Hungary's current government will be pressured to change further uh, legislation that they say have uh, limited press freedom and other check uh, and balances. And the spokesperson of Hungary's green liberal LMP party, Anna Suvek, hopes the EU will also be able to pressure Hungary to change controversial election laws that they say favors the ruling party. The outgoing Polish government might have been able to stay in power if the Polish elections had taken place in a voting system similar to that of Hungary. Uh, Stefan, uh, Oben has long been seen as the most vocal politician against the EU's policies on migration, rule of law, etc. And uh, more recently, of course, the war in Ukraine. How will that change now? I have to say, when you look at Ukraine, uh, there have been uh, differences between Poland and Hungary. Uh, Poland, for instance, allowed weapons through its territory for Ukraine, while Hungary officially refused to do so. Now, recently, that changed a little bit uh, due to some uh, tensions over uh, grain imports. But Hungarian analyst Daniel Hekedusz, of the German Marshall Fund think tank says Hungary's influence in Europe will weaken. The outcome of the Polish elections will make the EU feel less pressured to reach a compromise with Hungary regarding the frozen funds. From now on, one of the biggest critics of Prime Minister Orban will be residing in Warsaw. Stefan, uh, without that support, where can Orban go next? To the east, I think, uh, he has already raised eyebrows uh, after meeting and uh, handshaking in recent days with Russian President Vladimir Putin, who is considered uh, a war criminal by the European Union over his invasion of Ukraine. And Orban has overseen extensive fossil fuel and nuclear energy deals with Russia. However, with billions of euros in funding at stake and with political changes underway in Poland, he will be pressured, I think, to show where his true alliances are. Our Budapest correspondent Stefan Boss there. Congratulations to everyone last week who knew that the world's largest book fair is held in Frankfurt. This week, we want to know which country saw a women's strike for gender equality this week. Head on over to Spotify to take part in the poll. 
And in addition to Spotify and all the other usual platforms, Inside Europe is now also available via DW's brand new podcast channel on YouTube. You're listening to Inside Europe with me, Kate Laycock. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. We have a real treat coming up for you this half hour. Oboist James Austin Smith on his Hearing Memory Project, which explores the lost music of East Germany. Stories were recounted to me of sort of close calls with the Stasi where there would be officials at dress rehearsals, for example, overseeing whether they thought that the performance should be allowed or not. That's coming up in just a minute, followed by a two-part look at climate adaptations from Paris to the Ar Valley. Stay with us. Broadcasting from Germany, this is Inside Europe. What happens to the culture of a country when that country ceases to exist? That's the question which forms the starting premise of Hearing Memory, a musical historical project by American oboist James Austin Smith. Through documentary interviews, storytelling and musical performance, Smith and pianist Corey Smythe explore the complicated legacy of the daring classical music scene that emerged in the 1970s in East Germany. When the Communist German Democratic Republic, or GDR, was dissolved in the wake of the fall of the Berlin Wall, its music was, as Smith puts it, lost to the end of history. Until now, that is. Yeah, it's a really interesting history, and it's also a very compact history. It's sort of like a small museum. You can see it in like an hour, you know, because because the, the GDR only existed for like 40 years, right? So in the, the first half of the country's history in the 50s and 60s, much of the music, the classical music was about nation building and society building and socialist state building. So you have a lot of what is more or less propaganda music written in a very understandable style, you know, and that was, of course, dictated by the government and by the composers union that the art should be not only digestible, but it should also you know, inspire the workers and farmers of the socialist state to, you know, go about their duties honorably. And that, along with some political changes from the government in, in the late 60s, early 70s, that started to turn a corner. And what emerged in the early 70s, especially centered in Leipzig and around a very specific group of musicians, um, one of Europe's very first new music groups called the Group for New Music Hans Eisler, that turned into something, let's say, if the first 20 years were music written for the state, it turned into a sort of music written 
against the state, or at least in some kind of opposition or in some kind of pressure uh, against the kind of um, oppression that was so prevalent in East German society. So what developed was this kind of provocative, quite dramatic, quite theatrical, quite daring, avant-garde, really rigorous classical music that by the nature of the fact that there were typically no words to any of this music was difficult for the organs of state security, the Stasi, etc., to actually reject because they couldn't necessarily put the finger on, you know, that strange collection of musical notes is surely political protest. And it's very difficult to, 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 to argue that. And yet somehow what I learned from speaking to so many people who had been at these concerts in Leipzig, um, there was a very palpable and prevalent element of subversion in the kind of art that they practiced. So you had this group of eight musicians who would put on concerts, I can't, I can't quite remember, I just, you know, every few months, that became a kind of magnet for engaged citizens to turn up, to be culturally interested, and to feel as though they were a part of something that they otherwise couldn't experience in other parts of their daily life. So instrumental abstract music gains this kind of power that we in present-day society don't necessarily experience very often. There is a certain ancient quality to the oboe in the sense that, you know, cultures really around the world have this kind of reed pipe instrument really from antiquity. And I think there is something fundamental about that sound, the direction of air through a vibrating set of reeds. There's something fundamental about it. And I think that that speaks to a certain sense of expressivity and a certain sense of freedom in sound. I also think that there's an aspect of the physicality of the playing. There's this sort of old trope that um, the oboe is the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play. I'm not here to reject that trope. It is not an easy instrument to play. But there is something about the resistance of it, of the difficulty of it, that creates a, a sound that emerges out of resistance. Stories were recounted to me of sort of close calls with the Shazi where there would be officials at dress rehearsals, for example, overseeing whether they thought that the performance should be allowed or not. Somehow there's always these sort of protective, what do you call them, guardian angels that sort of help you move through the apparatus of the state. And I think the musicians themselves had those as well. In this case, it's actually a very interesting intersection between the state and the musicians because here you have this group of musicians who are actively creating something somewhat subversive. And yet, because the quality is so high and so on such a sort of international level, the state also recognizes that this group of musicians can be a kind of fig leaf 
for the state. And so they begin to send the group around Europe as an example of how great uh, culture is in the GDR. As one of the musicians that said to me, we were left alone to do our work and we were used for it. This all sort of started from when I was studying in Leipzig in 2005, 2006, and I had heard some of the music that had been created at this time. I actually remember I played in the, the new music group at the, the Mendelssohn Conservatory in Leipzig. Um, and we played one of the pieces that had actually been written for this group. I just kept in the back of my mind at some point I wanted to know more about this. At some point, maybe I would have time to do this. Some, someday... I would research this. And then it was March 2020. And all of a sudden, I had so much time. <laughs> and it was an escape from the global health situation that we were dealing with, that's for sure. It was also an escape from politics in the United States in you know, the run-up to the 2020 election, which I will say I, I'm not going to create some kind of equivalence or attempt to create some kind of equivalence with the GDR, but... That was an extremely politically oppressive time in the sense that we were surrounded by those politics every single day. And of course, the, the intersection of COVID and the presidential election was like a complete catastrophe. But just to say, it's all well and good to have an interest in, a, in an obscure political and cultural history. But the question, of course, when you're trying to present it to people is, what's the, what, why is it relevant and in that kind of oppressive political context that we experienced and continue to experience, of course, in this country, the question became, how are we as musicians, and especially how are young musicians like my students, able to react to politics with their art? Because they want to. They want to engage in some way. I think the biggest thing that really made me question our role in society in 2020 was how quickly we were dispensed with. Everything just canceled immediately. I think that was perhaps something that I struggled with at the time. You know, if what I do on a daily, weekly basis is so easily dispensed with, just how relevant is it to the people whose lives we're trying to touch? I've always been of the ilk that music exists, musical performance exists in a kind of feedback loop in the sense that in our best version, we do not walk on stage and sort of quote unquote park and bark in the sense of there is a feedback loop with our audience and that we do what we do to feel that connection in some way that goes both ways. And I think what this has confirmed in many ways is as fascinating as the work that these musicians did in the GDR, I think equally fascinating is the engagement that they were met with with their audience. And that 
there was some kind of political and cultural necessity for what they were doing as demonstrated by their audience's engagement. And so the question this has left me with in many ways is how do we empower our audiences, our fellow citizens, our fellow culture lovers to be as engaged in this art as we are? And how do we impress upon our audiences or collaboratively reach a point where the music that we are sharing together is necessary? Oboist James Austin Smith there. And if you are lucky enough to be in New York this weekend, you can catch him and pianist Corey Smythe as they perform Hearing Memory at the National Sawdust in Brooklyn. We have two innovative examples of European climate adaptation coming up for you next, one rural and one urban. The urban example first, Paris. As temperatures rise around the world, the city of Paris is implementing measures to deal with the heat. Almost 400 French citizens are thought to have died as a result of this August's record-breaking temperatures, so heat mitigation can literally be a case of life and death. Heat mitigation and emissions reduction go hand-in-hand in the master plan which the French capital hopes will take it to climate neutrality by 2050. For example, it's limiting the use of cars and greening certain areas around the city. Such measures could lead the way for other cities to follow suit. And yet, there are hurdles, as Lisa Louis reports. Paris, the city of love, has long been a tourist's dream. But despite its air of romance, on hot summer days... It can feel difficult to breathe. Concrete roads and buildings turn the French capital into what's known as an urban heat island. Climate change could make it as hot here as in southern Spain. That's why Paris is investing tens of millions of euros to help cool down the city. Bonjour. Bonjour. Enchanté, les amis. Dan Lord is deputy mayor and in charge of implementing the climate plan. The Canal Saint-Martin here is already open for swimming. After next year's Olympic Games, we plan to open three more basing areas on the Seine River. This is a historic city built for a moderate climate and one of the five most densely built cities in the world. That's why it's like an oven, far more so than places spread out over a larger area. One plan is to replace concrete with earth that can soak up rainwater and cool down the air. We'll also insulate public buildings. Many public squares have already gone green, like the Place de la Nation in northeastern Paris. Others are still in a transition phase, like the Place de Catalogne in southern Paris that will become an urban forest, as trees are crucial to cooling down the city. I am standing next to one of several brand new stretches of greenery across the city and I can feel the difference in temperature between here and just a few meters away over there. That's because the plants and trees provide shade and their roots draw water out of the ground which then evaporates on their leaves. Studies show that trees cool down the air by up to 10 degrees. 
They are like natural air conditioning units. The River Seine will not only become an open-air swimming pool, it's already providing a contribution to bringing down temperatures. It's part of an eco-friendly cooling system called Fraîcheur de Paris, a network of underground water pipes connected to over 700 buildings across the city. I'm paying a visit to one of the system's main cooling plants, the Centrale Canada. Raphael Neral is Secretary-General at Fraîcheur de Paris. These pumps push ice-cold water through the system. The water is cooled by refrigeration units which heat up in the process. That heat will be dissipated into the Seine. Its water flows through a secondary circuit. This system consumes half as much electricity as a conventional air conditioning unit. What's more, that electricity comes entirely from renewable energy. The network today has 90 kilometers of pipes. And the company plans to triple that over the coming 20 years. Paris was the first city in Europe to adopt such an underground cooling network. Now other municipalities are increasingly getting interested. Many city officials have come to visit us, especially from Northern Europe, to see how such a system works. It might seem a bit paradoxical since it's not so hot here in the north. But southern cities have been dealing with the heat for a while and have been adapting to it. Fraîcheur de Paris is already helping to cool places like the Louvre Museum and Paris City Hall. But air conditioning systems that use river water can't be endlessly extended, says Morgane Coulombert. She's the head of studies at Paris-based think tank Efficacity and an expert on urban climate adaptation. Systems like Fraîcheur de Paris warm up the river water, and that's only safe up to a certain threshold to protect the local biodiversity. So these systems can't cool down an entire city. We have to choose the buildings we'll cool down with them. In the future, Fraîcheur de Paris will also be connected to schools. Some of them are already enjoying the benefits of greener streets and pedestrian zones. And across the city, cars are increasingly sharing the streets with bicycles. You can already cycle almost all over Paris on large bike highways like this one. And the city will add another 55 kilometers of bike boulevards over the next three years. But not everybody is happy with the bicycle boon, which is leading to more traffic jams in busy areas. That's why planners need to take the concerns and needs of local communities into account, says climate expert Morgane Colombert. We need to make sure such plans are accepted, involve local people and explain the initiatives. Planners often focus on the technological side of climate adaptation, but the human factor is also important. Other plans are less controversial. The town hall is installing 632 square meter roofs on public squares across Paris. They'll provide shade to pedestrians. I accompanied Deputy Mayor Dan Lord as he recently inaugurated one of these roofs in a lower income neighborhood in the north of Paris. This is a new installation that will help us adapt to hotter temperatures that unfortunately are also affecting Paris. We carried out a little test just a few minutes ago and it's about 6 degrees Celsius cooler under this roof than it is under the sun. 
it can be up to 10 degrees cooler under the roof. And we've installed a new spray fountain over there. Then the deputy mayor took the small group of people attending the ceremony a few meters further. You just need to push this button and it sprays water for about 20 seconds. You feel the water, right? We are installing 24 such roofs and 73 spray fountains across Paris. They'll help us get through the summer on top of our existing heat measures. Our heat plan includes, for example, regularly checking in on vulnerable people and offering spaces such as in town halls where they can cool off. Measures like these will become even more important in the future if Paris, as some experts fear, will have to deal with up to 50 degrees Celsius one day. Lisa Louis, DW, Paris. We'll be looking at the impact of rising temperatures on a German wine-growing region next. In the meantime, I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Now, one of my favourite things to do at this time of year is to head out into the countryside south of Bonn to walk in the beautiful Ahr Valley, which at this time of year is a glow with glorious golds, reds and oranges as the vine leaves in this traditional wine-growing area take on their autumn colours. It has, however, been a very difficult few years for producers in the R Valley, who've been hit both by catastrophic flooding and the ongoing problem of rising temperatures and unpredictable growing seasons. In response, one local man is trying to get olive trees to put down roots there. Kathleen Schuster reports. It takes about five minutes to walk halfway up this terraced vineyard. Five minutes of very carefully maneuvering narrow stone steps covered in broken slate up a very steep slope. (laughs) A man named Oliver Heimerman is growing dozens of olive trees here in Germany's R Valley. He actually works in telecommunications, but he also imports fine olive oils. His culinary curiosity for olive oil grew over many a vacation in Tuscany, and now he has his eye on making olive oil right here in Germany. He shows off a young arbequina, a type of olive tree found in Spain, with slender silvery green leaves. The olive trees are something I'm working on with my brother-in-law. We had an idea, inspired by a glass or two, to try to grow olive trees, because it's actually getting warmer here. It's a good climate to test out our idea in. A good climate indeed. This autumn, it's been in the upper 20s, unheard of for October. His brother-in-law, who's a winemaker by the name of Peter Kriechel, used to use this steep slope for the grapes that make cool, crisp Riesling wine. Now, eight of its terraces are dotted with young olive trees, 
Many are barely a meter tall. They're imported from a nursery in Tuscany and paid for by sponsors from around Germany. The delicate trees lean on wooden stakes for support as they settle into this foreign northern European soil. A lot of people have weighed in, and as always, the opinions run the gamut. If you talk to biologists from around here, they'd like to use native plants to help with climate change. They tend to be critical and say this type of project won't work. But then there are others, like the biologist who works for my brother-in-law at the Kriechel Winery, who's helping us. He says it's working. You can see it. And they're not the only ones who think olive trees have a future in Germany. About 30 kilometers north of the Ar Valley, the curator of the botanical gardens at the University of Bonn, a woman named Cornelia Lune, walks past a row of crops traditionally grown in warmer climates. She leads the way to the olive trees. These are our olive trees that were planted here about five to six years ago. A few of them stand in a row on a well-kempt lawn. They're thriving despite experiencing frost this year a no-no for olive trees. As you can see here, we had to cut some branches that were just frozen over winter, but you can also see a tree sprouts quite nicely. So Back in her office, she says olive trees don't need much when it comes to soil. Olive trees are not very demanding in terms of soil, and that's why they are grown in areas that can't be used for anything else, can't be used for, for agriculture, for growing crops. That's where olive trees grow. So they're perfect for the wine areas as well because it's sunny, it's dry and well-drained soil. And sunny and dry conditions are what the projections for future weather patterns are pointing to. There are many studies and prognoses that show quite clearly and convincingly that we are going to have a Mediterranean climate at least in the western parts of Germany and in other regions as well. Um, in the foreseeable future, no one really knows whether it will be in 10 years or in 50 years, but we are going to have it, especially if we continuing the way we live at the moment and the way we uh, produce greenhouse gases. But a hotter, drier northern Europe would also mean an even hotter, even drier southern Europe, where the olive oil industry is already suffering from drought and deadly fungus. On the road to Oliver Heimerman's original testing spot, it's hard to miss how climate change has already shaped the area. For example, an old stone bridge with no water under it. The R River used to run under it, but now it runs around it. These images from Antweiler show the force with which the R River swept through the valley. Vehicles bobbing in the flood water. The consequences were devastating. In July 2021, extreme rain sent a surge of seven meters of water through the valley in a matter of hours. Many more still missing. Infrastructure has the unprecedented flooding left 135 people dead and caused widespread destruction. There's no drinking water. Emergency Someone has put large white letters that spell Danke, thanks, along the Bear River Bank. It's for the people who've helped the valley recover. High above in the vineyards, though, the memory of the flood seems to fade away as row after row of lush green grapevines come into view. People are busy harvesting. And there's only so much room for tractors and cars on these paths. 
The Aar is known for its red wines, Flu und Spätburgunder, and like Germany's other wine regions, crisp white wines like Riesling and Weißburgunder. But Heimermann says the conditions are changing so rapidly here that the winemakers have started experimenting with Chirac and Cabernet too. We can see this change with the grape vines, like types of Frühburgunder, for example, which are, I'd say, being harvested earlier now. They're also being grown in Sweden. In Sweden. Yeah. <laughs> Growing olive trees is a different business entirely, though. It takes at least seven years until a tree can produce olives for olive oil. And then you need about 10 kilos of olives to make just one liter of olive oil. There are about 50 trees up here at the original, more hands-off testing spot. Most of them are young, but the ones that are about 10 years old have plump green olives that look good enough to eat. Big mistake. Very bitter. <laughs> That's why olives need to be marinated first. Heimermann says they won't harvest these olives till November, and when all is said and done, they'll only need about an hour to pick the branches clean. He knows the olive groves he dreams of will take years, if not decades, to flourish and produce olive oil. That is, if all goes well. He seems really optimistic, though. Yes, I definitely am. Everyone needs a crazy idea. And as you can see, this one is bearing fruit, which is why we're optimistic that olives will be cultivated here. Kathleen Schuster, DW, the R Valley. Olives in the R. I could get used to that. That's it for today. This programme was produced by me, Kate Laycock, with help from Nick Martin and sound engineer Jürgen Kuhn. Our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com and our podcast is available on all the usual platforms and that now includes DW's new YouTube channel. Do check it out. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Bonn, Germany. <laughs>